Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Thomas Seafree, who in my view is the most prominent and knowledgeable cancer biologist in the world. And I'm not sure if he agrees with that, but that's my impression. And he's really going to enlighten us today about some of the mechanisms of cancer so that we can really help help us understand that so we can apply this in a practical way because it kills 1,600 people every day in the United States alone. And it's the number one cause of death in, in China. And it, I know they have a lot more people on us, but they're killing 8,100 people a day in China. And that's proportionally a larger amount than it is in the United States. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Seabree. Yeah, thank you, Joe. It's nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. So you, one of the, the uh, reasons that stimulated this call was that you wrote a paper, uh, which is mitochondrial substrate level phosphorylation as an energy source for glioblastoma, a review and a hypothesis. And it really encapsulates much of your views on, on cancer. So um, maybe you can walk us through those views for those of uh, for those who are not familiar with this, because I mean, it really. There is no one in the world, I think, that knows this better than you do. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for those nice words. Um, yeah, the paper that we wrote is a review and hypothesis paper um, identifying basically the missing link in Otto Warburg's central theory. So I think most people are familiar. Well, I, I, I don't even want to say that. I, 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 I think... I think some people have heard of Otto Warburg. Um, basically, he defined the origin of cancer very accurately back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s um, in his work in Germany. Basically, he, he argued and provided data showing that all cancer cells, regardless of tissue origin, basically were fermenters. They fermented lactic acid and uh, from glucose as a substrate. And this became, uh, um, even in the presence of oxygen, these cells So this is clearly a defect in oxidative phosphorylation. The, pro the problem is, is that for decades, people said Warburg was wrong, mainly because we see a lot of cancer cells take up oxygen and make ATP from within the mitochondria. So therefore, Warburg must be wrong. So uh, people began to, to question, if, if cancer cells have normal respiration, why would they want to use glucose as a fermentable fuel? So the whole concept became distorted in the sense that uh, Warburg was wrong, but cancer cells simply choose to ferment rather than respire. Now, of course, if you look under the electron microscope at majority of cancers, you'll see that the mitochondria are defective in a number of different ways. Their structures are abnormal, uh, the numbers are abnormal. So there's many abnormalities of my mitochondria seen uh, directly under electron microscopy. So clearly Warburg was not wrong. So if you know in biology, that structure determines function. This is an evolutionarily conserved concept. How is it possible for mitochondria to be seen as being structurally abnormal in tissue, and yet everybody's, many people claim that they're respiratory normal? Makes no sense. 
So um, the confusing issue, of course, was that most, many people, many people studied cancer and culture. They, they make major profound um, statements and um, com comments regarding the, what happens in culture. And if you look at cancer cells in culture, many of them do take in oxygen and make ATP, but at the same time, they're fermenting. So this was the conundrum. How is, they called it the Warburg effect. They're fermenting, but many people at the same time thought their respiration was normal. And this was the, the main problem with Warburg's theory that um, he, could, he could not, but Warburg clearly said in his papers, if you read them carefully, he said, it's not the fact that they take in oxygen, it's how much ATP they can generate from oxidative phosphorylation which is the normal respiratory capacity. So if you measure ATP and you look at oxygen consumption in the tumor cells, you say, well, they're, they they're making ATP, they're taking in oxygen, so therefore their respiration must be normal. Therefore, Warburg's central theory cannot be correct. Yet we have this conundrum when you look at the tissues in patient tissue sections, mitochondria are abnormal. So we have this problem. So what we, what myself and Dr. Um, Christos Chinopoulos from Semmelweis University in Budapest, Hungary, uh, who's the world leading expert on mitochondrial physiology and biochemistry. I, wow. I, I approached him with these conundrums and the two of us sat down and we realized that the mitochondria of tumor cells is actually fermenting amino acids, glutamine in particular. So they're not respiring, they're fermenting an alternative fuel, which is glutamine. And now we can explain that Otto Warburg was essentially completely correct in his understanding that cancer arises from damage to the respiration. And the compensatory fermentation now involves not only lactic acid fermentation, but also succinic acid fermentation using glutamine as a fermentable fuel. And we have seen, we've known for decades that glutamine is a main fuel for many different kinds of cancers. But most people thought that it was being respired, not fermented. So, um, so the, 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 the new discovery and the new information is that cancer cells have damaged respiration and in order for them to survive, they must ferment. And the two most available fermentable fuels in the cancer microenvironment are glucose and glutamine. So the management of cancer then becomes logical if you target glucose and glutamine because then you will starve the capacity of these cells to survive. And because they have mitochondrial defects, they can't use ketones so this, the, the, the very simple approach now is bring patients into therapeutic ketosis and then strategically target availabilities of glucose and glutamine. And that's, that's basically what we're saying, that mitochondrial substrate level phosphorylation is a, is a, is a non-oxidative metabolism mechanism inside the mitochondria that would generate significant amounts of energy without oxidative phosphorylation. So, Tom, you've written a, a masterful book, uh, Metabolic Theory of Cancer, which and, and then a paper on that, which is a, it's an expensive textbook that uh, you can certainly buy on Amazon, but you can get essentially a summary of it for free. By, you know, you've written a PDF that's a very elegant summary of that. So, uh, and that really frames the, the, the debate, I guess, that you have positioned with mitochondria as being the fundamental cause of nearly every single cancer, at least mitochondrial dysfunction. But that is not what virtually every conventional medical or, uh, therapist or oncologist believes, and they believe that it's genetic defects. So can you briefly summarize that and give us your perspective on it? 
Yeah, well, I think um, the belief, I guess when you call it, because I said it's a dogmatic view, just like a religion. Um, you don't look at the alternative explanations carefully enough. <clears throat> and um, I think that once people have the opportunity to look deeply into the literature and the evidence that supports what I'm saying, uh, they'd be hard pressed um, to, to, to think something other than that. Um, the nuclear transfer experiments um, are showing that cannot be a genetic disease. There's been no uh, scientific argument that I have seen, a rational argument to, dis to, to discredit the multitude of evidence showing that that uh, mutations are, are, uh, are not the drivers, but the effects. As a matter of fact, there's new information now where people are finding so-called genetic drivers of cancer uh, expressed and present in normal cells. So, um, you know, normal uh, skin and also in um, esophagus, some kinds of these tissues. Now, this is another thing, how you get these so-called driver mutations in normal tissues. And now we're also finding many cancers that have no mutations. So yet they're fermenting and they're going, uh, growing out of control. <clears throat> so there's a number of new uh, observations that are coming out that challenge this concept that cancer is a genetic disease. So um, then once you realize that it's not a genetic disease, then you have to seriously question the majority of therapies that are being used to try to manage the disease. And this can explain back to your and my, and my statements, your statement that we have 1,600 people a day dying from cancer in the United States. Why do we have such a, um, an epidemic, if you will, of, of, of suffering and death when we have been studying this disease for decades and decades? Um, well, I mean, if you look at the, the massive amounts of scientific papers that are being written on cancer, you'll often find that they're all structured around some gene defect. And what I'm saying is that, is that, you know, if cancer is not a genetic disease and the mutations are downstream epiphenomena, why would the field continue to focus on things that are mostly irrelevant to the nature of the disease? Now, these are, what I'm saying is very devastating statements because, you know, you're, 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 you're telling the majority of the people in the field that, you know, they're basically wasting their time. And, and the evidence for this is the 1,600 people a day that are dying. That, that's a fact. And the fact is that these people are dead because they're being mistreated by, by procedures that they shouldn't use if they understood the biology of the disease. I think, we, as I've said before, I think we could drop the death rate of this disease by about 50% in 10 years if cancer were treated as a mitochondrial metabolic disease targeting fermentable fuels rather than using toxic therapies that are focusing on downstream effects. So radiation is, des is designed to stop DNA replication. DNA replication requires energy. If you pull the plug on their fermentable fuels, they're not gonna be able to replicate anyway. Most of these toxic chemicals are used to stop re uh, uh, replication of cells, the, cyto the, the cytoskeleton replication or whatever, breaking DNA, binding DNA, all this kind of stuff. This all becomes nonsense when you can simply pull the plug on their fermentable fuels, they're gonna die. Now, as I said before, you see people with bald heads from being treated, you know, why, why would anybody have to have hair loss from chemical treatments that, that are, why would your hair fall out when you're trying to kill a cancer cell? Because you're trying to stop replication of all cells in the body. All you need to do is target the glucose and glutamine, transition the body over to ketones, and you'll kill the tumor cells without losing your hair. 
So all of these, all of the things that we're doing that to treat cancer um, is, is, is basically uh, uh, approaching the disease from a misunderstanding of the biology and the consequences become clear. So how long will it take before the field comes to know this? And that's the problem. I don't know. Okay. Because um, the kinds of arguments that you see against this are all not related to the actual scientific metabolic processes. They're not scientific issues. They're generally issues that have very little to do with the actual problem. So you want someone to come up and define in, ex in great detail why all these, why this massive number of nuclear transfer experiments are wrong. How do you explain uh, driver genes in normal cells? How do you explain cancers that have no mutations? But how do you explain the fact that all cancer cells have defective respiration? Once you look at the mitochondria in great detail. So if that's the case, then these are fermenting machines and you just take away the fermentable fuels. Not that complicated. So, um, so the problem is we've taken a, a disease and made it ma massively complicated by focusing on downstream epiphenomena. And this then perpetuates a constant mo movement in this field. You know, so I'm looking at all this and I'm saying, how long will it take them before they come to understand uh, the, the, the fundamental biology of the problem? That's the issue. Okay, well, <clears throat> thank you for the very elegant framework. And I've got lots of follow-up questions for specific details, but before we get there, uh, can you help us understand, well, we, you've explained very eloquently that mitochondrial dysfunction is, is the core cause of cancer that creates this mess where the cancer cells have to have this alternative pathway to create, to get their fuel. What is the primary cause of mitochondrial dysfunction from your viewpoint? Okay, so uh, this is the oncogenic paradox. And this is the, 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 the problem that has perplexed the field uh, for decades. And um, as I said, if, uh, the, the famous book by Sid Mukherjee on the emperor of all maladies, uh, New York Times bestselling book. I mean, you can read the pages on, in his book um, on, on, I think it's 282 and 302, where he asked the same question. You know, what is the common pathophysiological mechanism that could link all of the various uh, causes of cancer together? You know, we know viruses can cause cancer. Uh, we know radiation causes cancer. We know carcinogens cause cancer. We know intermittent hypoxia causes cancer. We know systemic inflammation causes cancer. We know just getting older puts you at risk for more cancer. We know there are inherited mutations in the genome that, that can cause cancer. So, but how are all these things linked through a common pathophysiological mechanism? And the common pathophysiological mechanism is damage to the structure and function of the mitochondria. So every one of the, the issues, every one of these provocative agents, including the inherited mutations, damage the respiration uh, of a particular population of cells in a tissue. So you look at BRCA1, for example. See, the people will say, oh, cancer, cancer has got to be a genetic disease because you inherit a mutation that causes a disease. You only get the disease if that mutation uh, disrupts the function of the mitochondria. 50% of women who carry the, the mutation never get cancer or breast cancer because the mutation for some unknown reason did not damage the mitochondria in that person. And you could look at the leaf Raumeni syndrome, uh, which is one of the more uh, uh, highly penetrant genes. Uh, penetrant means that when you, have the, when you have the gene, what is the probability of actually having the phenotype of that gene, which would be in this case cancer? 
and it's about 80% in leaf many, which is pretty high. So if you have the mutation, and the leaf many codes for P53 in the mitochondria, so P53 controls respiratory function. Now, why in the 20% of people that have the mutation, they don't get the cancer? That's a very, those are very interesting questions that we really don't yet know. But the issue is you cannot get cancer unless the gene damages the mitochondria. If the gene doesn't damage the mitochondria, then you don't get cancer. So the, the, the origin of the disease, the, the true origin is damage to the respiratory function of the mitochondria with a compensatory fermentation. And the fermentation is, uh, is run by oncogenes. They are facilitators of allowing glucose and glutamine to come into the cell to replace oxidative phosphorylation. So you can begin to piece the whole cancer puzzle together once you understand the fundamental origin of the disease. Okay, great. So let's help, help us understand how conventional medicine is really the leading cause of death and cancer by the implementation of the therapy, specifically radiation therapy and chemotherapy, which impair the immune systems, which the body relies on for getting rid of the cancer. Because you can go in and target the primary tumor, but then there's a secondary process where the cancer spreads, metastasis. And it can, this is something that I don't understand completely, and I'm sure you can enlighten us on, in that is that spread done through cancer stem cells circulating, or is it done through the macrophages? Yeah, uh, you know, we've, we've looked at cancer stem cells in a number of our uh, preclinical models, cells that have characteristics of stem cells. Uh, these guys grow like crazy in, in, in place, so the tumor just gets expanding. Um, but it doesn't spread. It doesn't spread uh, into the bloodstream or uh, we so-called metastasize to various organs. What we did was we discovered a very unusual cancer along, um, about 20 years ago, and it took us 10 to 15 years to figure out what it was. You could put a few of these cells anywhere in the mouse's body, and within three to four weeks, this, this mouse is full of metastatic cancer everywhere. It's, it made the cover of, um, of the Inter International Journal of Cancer when we published this um, back in 2008, but we had worked on the problem for years, and we couldn't figure out what it was that made these cells so incredibly metastatic and, and spread. And we found out that once we identified the biology of the cell, it turned out that we uh, have many characteristics in common with the macrophage, which is one of the most powerful immune cells in our body. So we said, wow, is this unique only to this kind of cell? or do metastatic cancers in humans also express characteristics of macrophages? So we looked and we found that almost every major cancer that metastasizes has characteristics of macrophages. Then we said, well, how, did, how could this possibly happen? Is it coming from the macrophage? Well, there's a number of scientists, John Pawlik at Yale University is one of the, the, the major proponents of this, Melissa Wong at Oregon Health Science Center. There's a group from, from Europe and in, in Sweden um, Shabo and others. And, the, and these folks have all clearly shown that there is some fusion hybridization character going on. In other words, macrophages are wound healing cells. They come into a microenvironment where you might find uh, many proliferating neoplastic stem cells, but they don't have the capacity to metastasize. It's only when the, the macrophages fuse with these stem cells that you have a dysregulated energy metabolism coming in this hybrid cell. And this hybrid cell now has characteristics of both stem cells and macrophages. So consequently, but you see the stem cell is not genetically equipped to enter and exit tissue. The macrophage as a normal cell of our body is genetically equipped to enter and exit tissue, live in the bloodstream. They're, 
They're very strongly immunosuppressive. These are all characteristics of metastatic cancer. So metastatic cancer now is a hybrid cell of our immune cell system with another kind of a cell, which is some sort of a dysregulated stem cell, maybe coming from a disorganized epithelial cell or whatever. It's a hybrid cell that has macrophage characteristics, and it can spread all through the body very rapidly. It can live in hypoxic environments, therefore making most angiogenic therapies ineffective, which has been shown. So we can then, we, then we know, okay, so what is this cell? What does it eat? And we know that macrophages and immune cells uh, are major glutamine consumers. So we know that we can kill these metastatic cells by, by effectively targeting glutamine. But you have to do it in such a way as not to harm the normal max and the normal immune cells of our system. So it has to be done very strategically. And that's why we developed the press pulse therapy of cancer, which allows us to maintain health and vitality of our normal immune system, while at the same time targeting the corrupted immune cell of our body, which is this macrophage fusion hybrid, along with, uh, with the inflammation and other, other conditions associated with the metastatic and spread of that cell. Okay, well, let's, let's take a step back a step because a macrophage is a healthy, normal cell that your body produces to keep, your, to keep yourself healthy. Yeah. And it responds to injury. It does a lot of repair and wound healing. Yes. And, but it's not very smart. It just, there's certain precepts. Well, we, don't, we, don't, we, we, we don't like to use the term smart okay. or any of these kinds of terms. Um, they're programmed. These cells don't yeah. think. They, they're, they, they're genetically programmed to do what they do. Okay, they evolve to pr perform certain functions. And those functions, when becoming corrupted, then lead to uh, 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 the, the misdirection of those, of those cells. So it's a cell that has been evolved over, over millions of years to help and heal body. So if you get a, a wound or a cut or a contusion, the first thing that we as, as, a, as a species have to, have to fear is the infection. So bacterial infection comes into a wound and could kill us faster than anything. So we have these very powerful cells that are designed to kill bacteria in hypoxic environments. And this is the pus is basically millions of white dead blood cells, white, white blood cells that have died in the battle to keep ourselves uh, 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 battling against the infection of bacteria. And if the bacteria gain the foothold, then we're dead from sepsis or some very serious bacterial infection. So the macrophage is one of the first uh, lines of defense against the bacteria, along with our other immune system cells. They're all, macrophages are also wound healing cells. So if you have a lot of dead cells in the microenvironment, the macrophage means big eater. So this cell goes around and eats the dead cells and it can re reconfigure, it's like a bulldozer, it can reconfigure the microenvironment, along with the help of other cells. My, uh, fibroblasts and other immune cells, you know, but the bottom line is they heal wounds, they protect us against bacterial infection, they have a lot of different functions that are genetically programmed, and they surveil our body. So they exist in the bloodstream as, as uh, white blood cells, monocytes, and they also exist in various tissues as residents. So we have resident macrophages in most of the tissues of our body. We have Kupfer cells in the liver, alveolar max in the lung, microglia in the brain, these are the local guys, they sit in those tissues. But when something happens, they immediately have the capacity to move and migrate through the tissues to serve a, a protective role. So the, the metastatic cancer cell has many of those same properties, but the energy and the function of the cell is completely dysregulated. 
So it proliferates like crazy, but has the capacity to move and spread through the body. So it's a corrupted macrophage. We call it a rogue macrophage. And those are the cells that eventually kill, uh, are responsible. So uh, getting back to your question, you know, the, th the therapies that we are using to attempt to kill these cells put us at risk for having the cells survive and kill us. Uh -huh. so, uh, many of the, you know, you can control these cells for a short period of time, but they can hunker down and, and, and enter into some sort of a slightly dormant state, but they re reappear. So when people say, oh, these tumor cells are so nifty and smart, they can, they can come back at you. Well, the, the problem is you never, you've never really challenged them uh, 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 on their very existence, which is they depend on fermentation to survive. And if you don't tar target their fermentation, they're going to continue to survive and come back at you. So many, many of the therapies that we use, radiation, chemo, and, and, and some of these other procedures, you know, are not really going after the heart of the problem. So um, that offer, oftentimes puts you at risk for the recurrence of the disease. Your body is already seriously weakened by the toxic treatments that you use. And in the battle, you lose. You know, and, and, if you, and if you are fortunate enough to survive, and there's many, many cancer survivors who say, I survived with all this poison, but you know, your body is still beat up. You have now put your liver and kidneys and, 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 and nervous right. system, everything at, at risk for other kinds of maladies. I mean, if I took a group of just healthy, normal 21-year-old kids and gave them the th therapies that we use to treat cancer patients, you know, many of these kids would be sick as a dog they put their, their, their self at risk for all kinds of other problems, and some of them could die. Healthy people just given toxic cancer therapies, some of these kids could actually die from the very therapies. So why are we using, why are we using such toxic therapies to kill a cell that we know what, what the weaknesses are that we can kill with le far less toxicity? So this is the, these are the paradigm changes that will have to occur as we move into the new, the new era of managing cancer in a logical way. Yeah. So I want to get back to, to the macrophages again, because I, I don't still think we didn't cover like, like the people can fully understand it, but the, so they're designed, they're programmed, yeah. but, they, but to, to repair the wound healing. And unfortunately in our, you know, cancer is a relatively new phenomenon. So it didn't exist. So that makes no sense that the, that the macrophages would have the ability to discriminate between a cancer cell and a wound cell. So it confuses. Well, they, because can't. Of the, yeah, they can't, they can't, they can't, right. They so can't they can, the distinction. they can, they could, let me, if I can just finish the questions, because then I'll let you go. But if they can just, so they confuse the two, the, the my, local microenvironment for the wound cell, the a wounded cell that, that, that you need, and then the, the cancer. And as a result, you, you, you referenced it earlier, but they fuse, and those, they're fusing with these cancer cells that have defective mitochondria, and they just replicate that. Yeah. So that's what I want you to expand on, and expand, and it, help us understand too that plants don't have this mechanism that's why plants can get tumors but they never die from metastatic disease yeah they don't have an immune system uh, a mobile they don't have an, a mobile immune system like like mammals have so so basically um you're right joe when, when you have this you have a bunch of stem cells proliferating in situ at the same location we don't know at what point the, the metastatic process begins. It could begin early or it could begin after many, many years um, do you get this kind of fusion event. But once you get the fusion event and you look under the microscope and say, wow, look at all these different kinds of cells, different morphologies and things like this. They're in that gamish of cells in that milieu. Um, you have normal macrophages, normal parts of our immune system 
together with other cells that look similar to the immune system and look similar to cancer cells. So it sometimes can be very difficult to distinguish who is friend and foe in this gamish of cells. And also, when you have normal macrophages entering into the, into the gamish, of uh, this, this microenvironment, you know, they're throwing out growth factors and cytokines for facilitating wound healing. And the cancer cells are also using those same those things to grow faster. So, you know, they're, 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 they're uh, stimulating the uptake of glucose and glutamine in this microenvironment. So it's, as I said, it's an escalating situation of biological chaos. You have all of these cells doing their genetically programmed activities in the wrong context, thereby, thereby creating a, pro, a bigger problem than was actually there. So the cells don't think, they can't know what's going on. They just respond to the cues in the, in the microenvironment. And the microenvironment throws out, cancer cells are fermenting, so they're throwing out uh, lactic acid and succinic acid and acidification of the microenvironment, which is like a wound, driving more of our immune normal immune cells into this microenvironment, some of which are now becoming corrupted, others, other of which are being contributory towards the growth. And all these cells are, are, are doing what they were designed to do, but the, in a very wrong context. And this then leads to this, so this, um, uh, uh, this, this developing process. So, but what we do know is that when we use um, fasting or calorie-restricted ketogenic diets or whatever, we significantly reduce the inflammation in the microenvironment, and we start to kill off the, the cells that are actually dependent on fermentation, leaving behind the healthy cells, the cells that will clean up the mess. Basically, if you kill a lot of cancer cells, you also have to have a, a system to come in and clean up the corpses. Otherwise, the corpses laying around will, fa will facilitate an infection response, which then could put the patient at risk for um, you know, effects that are related to, uh, to um, um, some sort of a bacterial infection that could arise. So you need to clean up the microenvironment. And the microenvironment is strategically killing those cells that are dependent on fermentation, enhancing those cells that aren't, and, and, and also reducing the inflammation in the microenvironment. So it's a, it's a strategic uh, uh, approach. You also have to be very careful not to kill your normal and healthy immune cells because they need the glutamine, they use glutamine too. So what we find is that when we strategically attack the tumor this way, it turns out that our immune cells are paralyzed, a normal immune, the, the cancer cells are killed, but the normal immune cells are paralyzed. So they, they're not dying, but they're just not doing their job. So what we do is we back off the therapy a little bit, allow the normal immune cells to regain their biological capacity, pick up dead corpses, reheal re the microenvironment, and then we go after the cancer cells again. So it's a graded response, knowing the biology of the normal cells and the abnormal biology of the tumor cells. So, I mean, you, this is a beautiful strategy. Once people know how, how you can play one group of cells off another and how you can strategically kill one group of cells without harming the other cells, it really becomes a, 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 a precision mechanism for eliminating tumor cells without harming the rest of the body. You don't need to be poisoned and irradiated. So you, you just have to know how to use, uh, use these procedures to strategically kill the cells. So protecting normal macrophages is part of the strategic process, and killing the corrupted ones is part of the strategic process. So again, you have to put all this together in a, in a very logical path. Otherwise, you're not going to get the level of success that, that we should be getting. Okay. I uh, so many more questions, uh, but let's continue along this line. Uh, the 
uh, press poll or press press pulse. pulse press pulse press pulse treatment that you described and written papers on is uh, very elegant and involves essentially restriction of the fermentable fuels, glucose and glutamine for the path, through the pathways you discussed. And it has to be done in a cyclical fashion, otherwise you're going to cause damage. So would you tell us the frequency of the, the cycling, how it looks, looks like, and what some of these glutamine inhibitors are, because it's really easy to understand how to lower glucose. That's the ketogenic diet. But it's not easy to understand how to lower glutamine. And I know there's Don, which is very expensive and hard to get, and, and talk about EGCG and chloroquine and some of the other strategies. And, and maybe comment on the number of clinics that are using it, which I, is at least my recent understanding is that no one's using this yet because of the glutamine inhibition. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is a, these are very important, uh, are very important points. Um, the press pulse uh, strategy um, was developed um, from the concept of press pulse in the, in the field of paleobiology. And, um, and the, the, the eradication, extermination, or extinction of large numbers of organisms in the history of the Earth has had um, uh, the greatest amount of, of, of biological extinctions have occurred during two very unlikely events, a chronic stress uh, in the environment coupled with some catastrophic pulse, um, like a meteor strike or something like this, uh, um, a climate change together with a meteor strike uh, was responsible for the extermination of massive numbers of organisms on the planet in the past. So the paleobiologists referred to this as a press, which was some chronic stress on populations, killing off large numbers, but not, but not, not everything, because some organisms can, can adapt to stress. And then you have a pulse, which was some catastrophic event, and together, the simultaneous occurrence of these two unlikely events led to the mass extinction of almost all organisms that existed on the planet. And this was a cyclic event over, over you know, many hundreds of millions of years. And the geological records show evidence for these press pulse extinction phenomenon. So what we simply did was take that concept and say, let's, let's chronically stress the tumor cells. They need glucose. Um, uh, and you can probably kill a significant number of tumor cells by, by just stressing their glucose. So that's the press. The press is different ways to lower blood sugar. And you put that chronic stress on top of the population, either by restricted ketogenic diets, therapeutic fasting. There's a lot of ways that you can do this. Also, emotional um, uh, stress reduction. Uh, people are, are freaked out because they have cancer. Therefore, their, their corticoid steroids are elevated, which elevates blood sugar. So pressing, uh, uh, using you know, various forms of, of stress management, uh, moderate exercise, all of these will lower blood sugar and contribute to a chronic press and stress on the cancer cells. However, you're not going to kill all cancer cells in my mind if you just take away glucose. Because the other, the other fuel that's keeping the beast alive is the glutamine. So we have to pulse because if we're too, we can't use a, a press for glutamine targeting because then you're going to damage and kill your normal immune cells or impair them. And they, we need, they are needed for the eventual resolution of the disease. So what we're going to do is we're going to pulse various uh, drugs. We, can't, we don't have a diet system that will target glutamine. Glutamine is just everywhere. It's the most abundant amino acid in our body. 
So there's no diet. When people say, what's the diet? You, I don't know of any diet that can, that can challenge glutamine. But we can use drugs. And you're right, Joe. I mean, drugs, but you have to use them very strategically. Otherwise, they can harm our normal immune system and then counter, be counterproductive. So again, I cannot specifically answer the dosage, timing, and scheduling because that's where the four, that's the cutting edge right now. The cutting edge is how we dose, time, and schedule the glutamine targeting systems that will be worked in a pulsing uh, 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 process. And um, there are a number of drugs that will target glutamine, but you have to do it strategically. Don, Don just uh, reduces glutaminase, the first step in the process of converting glutamine to glutamate. Then there are other, other pathways in the glutaminolysis uh, pathway that could be targeted. The problem is we don't know the toxicity or the strategy yet for how to use these drugs. So this is the cutting edge. I, I think that once we understand this um, and understand how we can target effectively glutamine without harming our normal immune cells while we hold the body under a glucose press, this is the, this is the strategy. This is the strategy that will make most of this other therapies obsolete. It's my view that once we understand this dosage, timing, and scheduling, why would we want to treat ourselves with anything other than this strategy? It's cost-effective and non-toxic, and it will work very well. But we're still at the, at the very beginning of this, and, and, we, need, and we need continue to, to develop the dosage, timing, and scheduling of those drugs that are most effective in targeting glutamine that can be done without harming the rest of the cells in our body. Great. So thanks for that answer. And, and I have a tangential question. I've recently come to understand a statistic that just shocked the heck out of me, that 30%, nearly one third of the proteins that we make are misfolded. And the body has a mechanism for refolding these, or at least, or, or at least identifying the, the misfolded proteins. And if they can't refold them, then they can get rid of them. That's yeah. the heat shock proteins. Mm. And uh, it, the, the connection is, is that, and I didn't realize actually until this morning, I was reading an article on this, is that glutamine actually incre increases these heat shock proteins. So I'm wondering from your perspective, if because heat, heat shock proteins are generally thought to be good in the right amount. So what is the connection between glutamine heat shock proteins and integration into the, the, the press pulse? Well, we, we don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, glut you have to realize glutamine is such an incredible amino acid. Um, not only not only is it um, potentially you know doing this with the heat shock proteins, but it's also uh, necessary for the normal gut function, for the urea cycle, uh, for the just general function of all of our immune cells. So um, um, it, it, when you start looking at all the different functions of glutamine in the body, it's really astonishing. And this is why when I when I said the the pressed pulse pulsing to target glutamine must be done very strategically so as not to harm. Your, your goal is to kill the tumor cells without disrupting the function of the normal cells. So, you know, glutamine plays in our muscles, you know, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very versatile kind of, 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 of amino acid. It's a metabolite for so many different things. And we don't want to, uh, uh, too aggressively or, or without knowledge, target a, 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 a metabolite that plays, that is involved in so many other important activities. So we want to try to do this. This is why we call it the pulse, because we have to be strategic in the way we do this so as not to harm uh, the function in normal cells where glutamine plays a very valuable, a very vital role in all these other cells and in these other different organ systems and in general physiology of our body.
So, so again, you know, we're, 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 desi- we're the, the strategy that we're taking is one of basic energy, energy. Without energy, nothing can grow. So we want to deprive the tumor cells of their energy, but we do not want to harm the ability of normal cells to carry on their functions. And that's where the challenge right now is, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. It's a very, uh, it's a very achievable goal. It's not like we're lost in this. We know exactly what we do, what we need to do, and we're working on the, the mecha- mechanisms to do that without harming heat shot protein, without doing these other kinds of things. Okay. So there's a related concept that another function of mitochondria is also to catalyze apoptosis, which is the removal of these, these cancer cells, and it's in addition to creating uh, energy through oxidative phosphorylation. But and a similar process is autophagy. So go, going back to glutamine, and I just recently understood this too, when I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the cycling of autophagy. I don't think it's something that should be done regularly, but when you are seeking to activate autophagy pathways, the last thing you want to do is take glutamine because that's going to stimulate mTOR, which will inhibit autophagy. So I'm wondering if you could comment on the integration of the cycling, maybe from the, based on your press pulse experience, with how frequently someone should do autophagy uh, for a healthy diet in a preventive format to... Well. Make sure yeah. we don't get cancer in the first place. Well, no, yeah, the off, the the off, autophagy is just cell cells eating their own organelles yeah. to improve the function of the of the organelles without without dying. Okay, right. so it's a it's a it's a house cleaning function. Yeah, and, and generally it happens under water only therapeutic fasting or something like this. Maybe other other mechanisms of cell, but that's I think that that touches more upon um, upon the prevention. I mm-hmm. think if you I think if you undergo uh, water-only therapeutic fasting uh, as, one, as one mechanism, you increase the autophagy uh, behavior in your normal cells, thereby enhancing the functionality of your mitochondria. And as I said before, and many times, you can't get cancer if your mitochondria, I would say the risk of getting cancer is extremely low if your mitochondria are healthy. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, auto, the autophagy process is keeping mitochondria healthy. Um, but once you have the cancer, um, you know, uh, as I said, the metastatic cell uh, is, is going to be able to um, phagocytose debris uh, from the microenvironment or use internal organelles to generate fermentable fuels. So you're dealing with a, with a, different, a different strategy. Now, to stop that, um, and this is why we use one of the, the drugs that we use is chloroquine um, as just one one method, chloroquine neutralizes the acidity in lysosomes. So you can't break down the organelles from within, or, or you cannot phagocytize debris from the, from the microenvironment in order to free up carbohydrates and amino acids for fermentation processes. So you, that's basically you're, you're causing a, a malfunction of the internal digestive system, including autophagy, when you, when you use chloroquine as a, as a method for um, trying to stop this process. So that's part of our, you know, press pulse concept. You know, you pulse with chloroquine. Um, uh, so we're still working on that angle. Uh, it's known to have anti-cancer effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it blocks autophagy, but it also blocks phagocytosis. So um, again, this would be more used to manage the disease rather than to present, prevent the disease. Okay. So I listen to your nearly three-hour interview with Peter Atia, who's a pretty bright physician and was, has formal training in oncology. 
and was very complimentary with you for nearly the first two hours. But then you entered a topic of <laughs> the concern you had about doing biopsies and the potential spread of the cancer. And then he really kind of changed his position. It became almost a... Uh, well, he had, he just felt that, it, that he was protecting his, his readership from that. Maybe, I don't know. But, but, you know, the bottom line is that there's plenty of papers in the scientific literature. Yeah. Showing. So I, want you to, I want you to go into that and expand it because it really is important. And it, and it really highlights a principle that everyone needs to understand because most of us are going to have ourselves, our friends or family are going to be having cancer. And, and these biopsies are an important part of the process. And I have a lot of follow-up questions on that. So, so enlighten us. Yeah, well, you have a, you have a, a group of, of, of cells that are proliferating in a particular part of the body. And uh, for purposes of, of diagnosis, oftentimes they'll take a biopsy sample uh, from the tissue and then do a histological analysis of this and then say, oh, it's benign or, or it's malignant based on the, on, based on the, on the appearance uh, of the cells under the microscope. You know, how many mitotic figures do you see? You know, what is the morphological appearance of the cells? Are they, are they de-differentiated? Are they look, and they make a distinction. Pathologists will then come and say, well, this looks like a benign tumor or stage one tumor. There's a few mitotic, or this is a really aggressive tumor. So uh, based on the biopsy. Okay, so, so the, the issue here is that you have a group of cells, and now you're going to take a needle and you're going to stab this microenvironment to remove some parts of the tissue for this kind of analysis. Well, this creates a wound in that, in that microenvironment that elicits the invasion of the area by, by macrophages and other cells of the immune system. And if you already have an acidic microenvironment, you run the risk of causing a fusion hybridization event in that microenvironment, thereby putting, uh, taking a potentially benign situation and making it malignant. On the other hand, if there is some degree of malignancy, and then you stab this microenvironment with a needle, you then have you run the risk of making a, a, a bad situation even worse. So the question is, um, so what is the value uh, of, of doing a biopsy in the first place? So we take biopsies of breast tissue to get a genomic readout of the different kinds of mutations that might be in the cells. Now, if, the, if cancer is not a genetic disease and the mutations are largely irrelevant, then it makes no sense to do that in the first place. So if the tumor is benign, why would you want to stab it? If the tumor is malignant, why would you ever want to stab it? So the whole concepts then become, uh, you know, I'm not just saying this from a personal, I, I made this view by reading so many articles in the literature based on brain cancer, uh, breast cancer, colon cancer, liver cancer, arguing how and showing how needle biopsies have led to the dissemination of these tumor cells, putting uh, potential, putting these people at risk for metastatic cancer and death. So uh, the, the Peter's argument was, well, it happens so rarely, why are we getting worried about it? But if you're the person that got the spread from, the, from that, you're, 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 you, know, you don't want to put anybody at risk for spreading their disease using any kind of a procedure. So, so my view is, is if you can use metabolic therapy to don't touch the beast, just let it sit there. Don't disturb the microenvironment. Uh, what you do is you shrink it down big time. And then 
If it goes away, you never have to do anything. If it's still there shriveled, you can do a, a complete surgical debulking um, and, and remove it without uh, worrying about leaving an or, uh, uh, a growth in place while you investigate the pathology in a small section of that growth. And the growth now becomes something different than what you, what you originally had. So the information you're getting from, from the biopsy may no, no longer be relevant to what's going on in the microenvironment after the needle biopsy. So when you start to look at this as, as, as a biological problem, many of the things that we do in cancer make no sense. So we have in brain cancer, we do um, like people say, oh, you have a very low grade tumor. Let's go in and, and get it out. And what happens, you go in and get it out. And, and then uh, the following year, it turns into a glioblastoma. You know, how did that happen? Well, you disturbed the microenvironment. You allowed these cells that are marginally aggressive to become highly aggressive. And then you lead to the demise of the patient. And that happens significantly because it's called secondary glioblastoma arising from therapeutic attempt to manage a low-grade tumor. Now, the same thing can happen with, with, with all these different organs. You stab breast tumors, you stab colon tumors, you, you run the risk of spreading the cells. Now, prostate. this is very, prostate, you know, you, you, I mean, it's a very uncomfortable thing for me to say this to the field because this yeah. is what many people make a living doing this. Yeah. But I'm saying you're putting a patient, you're putting, you potentially increase risk for metastatic aggressive cancer by doing that procedure. So yeah. this, is, this is the issue. And it's based on a number of reports in the scientific literature documenting what I'm saying. Well, to, to uh, and many people who have cancer are going to be confronted with as their physician or managing yeah. clinician is going to recommend a biopsy. And uh, I think from your perspective, they're only going to recommend chemo and radiation or surgery, uh, which I want to talk about in a moment. But to defend their position, it would be that if they got the biopsy, that may help them determine which type of therapy they're going to recommend, which is not going to be metabolic therapy. So that would be the, I guess, their justification for using the biopsy. Yeah, I, I guess you know you can you can do it that way. I mean, the bottom line is how do we keep this person alive? Yeah. You know, yeah. Do we no do we want to we want to resolve their disease without putting them at risk for killing them, basically, you know, in in the procedure. Now, okay, so let's you know why do we need the biopsy? Well, we have to determine uh, what kind of therapy we're going to use. Okay, so like for breast cancer, sometimes. I mean, they'll do aggressive therapy even on a minor, even on a benign tumor will, will sometimes require mastectomies and this kind of thing. My, my argument is the following. If the patient has a lump, whether it's in the breast or colon, lung or wherever, um, or, 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 or a lesion of some sort, that, that should be the cue to do metabolic therapy. Mm -hmm. So do metabolic therapy first. In all, all likelihood, it will shrink down and become less aggressive. Then the option becomes, should we debulk completely rather than doing some sort of a biopsy. And, and we want to reduce the risk because if we can catch the whole tumor completely, then uh, we, don't, um, we don't run the risk of spreading it. Yeah. And, and that's just, it's all, all risk management in my mind. Okay, risk management. What is the best strategy that we can remove this growth without harming or, or increasing any risk for spreading the disease? So stabbing a new, a new lesion with for a biopsy material is in my mind not the best way to go. I, I think that to, that patient the patient is extremely healthy. You know, uh, it comes in with a lump or a lesion of some sort. Immediately go into a metabolic approach. See if it shrinks down. What happens if it disappears? You don't have to do anything. 
uh, what happens if it becomes much smaller than what it was? Now, we, now a surgical debulking could potentially completely cure the disease without running the risk of spreading it. So I think it has to be done logically. Every patient has to be viewed. And in some cases, you have to do, do what you do. But in other cases, you may have to reconsider the strategy and make uh, different decisions. It's just, a, it's just a, something to be aware of, not, not saying it doesn't ever happen, because there's evidence that biopsy can spread cancer. Sure. All right, let's get to, to the point where you can give us your, uh, your pers perspective on the, the three conventional approaches that are going to be recommended for cancer, which is usually chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or surgery. And I, I believe, I know your position is that you don't believe, recommend that there's ever a need for radiation or chemotherapy and that that's going to be um, counterproductive in the long term. And then sequencing of the metabolic therapy for, this, for the surgical intervention. No, I, I don't want to ever say that we would never use radiation or chemo. I, I think okay. if, if the evidence is, is, is uh, clear that you have a 90% or greater cure rate, and I mean cure by, by uh, this managing the, the tumor in this, in this way uh, almost guarantees a non-recurrence after at least 15 to 20 years based on, on, on the scientific evidence, then I would say, do it. Do, do that. Do, do what works. Always do what works. So, um, but on, on the other hand, um, you know, irradiating uh, some kinds of, like brain cancer, <clears throat> I would say never irradiate the human brain to try to manage a tumor. Uh, that should be that should be uh, eliminated completely, because the evidence is that it it contributes to the demise of the patients. But it may not be the same for another form of cancer. But um, chemotherapy again is designed to uh, stop DNA proliferation. So you use chemo basically to stop the proliferation of replicating DNA in one way or another, or cell replication, my, my, mitosis. You're blocking mitosis. Well, cells can't divide without energy either. So if I take away their energy, I'll have the same endpoint. The cell will die because it can't, it, it can't ferment. So the question is, why use a poisonous chemical to achieve the same, the same outcome as, as, as pulling the plug on their energy? Now, the argument, of course, is that we haven't had enough uh, case reports or clinical trials to validate what I'm saying. So there's, where are the, somebody said, where is the clinical trial to prove what I'm saying? Well, it's not there, and I'll be honest with you. But case reports have certainly shown this to be the case. The individual case reports where they, they forego chemo and radiation to do metabolic therapy, and those have been, a couple of those have been published. Um, the, 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 argument, the, the argument is, is that, okay, uh, the science is what, is what we're arguing here. The logic of the science to, to, to the strategy to, for therapeutic management is based on science. Radiation and chemo is not based on the underlying origin of the disease and what the disease needs to grow. So it's just, let's, let's burn the whole house down while we're trying to kill these cells. You know, other cells are damaged. The body is damaged. You, the, the, if, if you're smart and, under, and you understand the biological problem, you can strategically kill tumor cells without harming the rest of the body. You don't need poisonous chemicals. So the argument here is, is that do we want to continue on with a strategy not based on the understanding of the biology, or do we want to try to develop a strategy based on the biological problem of the disease in the first place? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing debate, and I think it has to be vetted. And I think, you know, um, and we can, unfortunately, I'm not in favor of doing large-scale clinical trials and metabolic therapy at this point, only because a lot of the 
a lot of the, the, the we haven't trouble, didn't do troubleshooting on all the different variables yet. Mm -hmm. So I think we do case, individual case reports, a few people here and there, before we're able to recommend a strategy that would be applicable to a larger number of, of people. So right now we're working out the details. But, you know, um, eventually, I think metabolic therapy will replace the majority of radiation and chemotherapies. Surgery can always be a considered part, but it has to be done strategically. You don't want to do a surgical procedure that run the risk of spreading the tumor throughout your whole body. Why should you have to do massive mastectomy, colon, removing large sections of the colon, uh, when you only can remove a small lump or a small lesion, uh, rather than you know, doing what we call surgical mutilation? But surgery will always be a component of the cure, in my mind, for the most part. Not always, but it, it, it all has to be done in light of the, of, of the biological problems that we're confronting. So I think all of this has to be reconsidered. And it's, you know, the poor oncologists, I mean, they're just doing what they've been trained to do. Um, they're not thinking about the biological problem of the disease itself. Don't forget, cancer is a systemic problem. It's not a localized issue. The whole body is out of balance in one way or the other. So you, in, in our procedure, you bring the body into, back into a very high state of metabolic balance. And then you strategically go and degrade the tumor slowly without harming the rest of the body. Radiation and chemo and the strategies that we're using today don't do this. They're, not ba they're based on the, on the gene theory of cancer, that genetic mutations are causing the cell cycle to grow out of control. Well, this is, this is not the case. So again, it, a lot of this has to be rethought, reanalyzed re, re in my mind. Okay, well, thanks. Uh, to, today, 1,600 people are gonna die from cancer. So I understand that metabolic therapy is the ultimate, but unfortunately, the details haven't been worked out, especially with respect to the glutamine uh, pulse, pulsing cycle. So what would you recommend today to those who are confronted with this? And I get, you know, certainly lowering the glucose and the glucose ketone index and getting that in line, but to emphasize that diet alone is not going to cure your cancer. I mean, potentially. Well, no, I, I don't want to rely on that. No, no you've I, got I, to use a hybrid therapy. So what do you recommend? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, you know, I don't want to say that. Let's put it this way. I have never been able to cure a mouse with advanced metastatic cancer using diet alone. Right. I am astonished when I see certain human beings able to resolve some parts and get long-term overall survival and progression-free survival using diets. We, we've never, uh, the human is a different species than a mouse, mm -hmm. obviously. But you know, uh, why I'm not as successful in the mouse as people are uh, themselves is, is an interesting question. I am convinced, though, that if I can, if I can resolve the disease, advanced metastatic disease in the mouse using this strategy, I think the success in humans will be even far greater. Um, because don't forget, we use natural models. We're not using these genetically engineered kinds of things that are unrepresentative of the real world. Makes everybody feel good, get a big paper in science and nature, but they don't represent the real world. You have to have uh, natural models like, like dogs and and mice that have natural forms of cancer, not these genetically engineered things. And then you'll, you'll, you'll be able to get a closer approximation of what's gonna happen when you begin to work with, the, with an alternative species. So yeah, I, I don't wanna say um, um, that you know, we never would wanna use any of these other procedures. And uh, hybrid procedures um, may be necessary. Now I know we're doing that in Turkey with our clinical friends over there. I mean, they're using some sort of a hybridization. And they're getting very, very good results. So um, to use uh, 
a metabolic therapy as a standalone approach, a mono, a mono approach without toxic chemicals is obviously the ultimate goal. But to be honest with you, Joe, um, doing experiments to ferret out dosage timing and scheduling is very time consuming and labor intensive for us to do these kinds of experiments. And as you know, these are not cheap experiments to do. They require funding. You know, we, we, we thank those who have given us the support to do this, because I think, I think we will be able to develop a strategy that will be translatable to the human condition uh, once we have this worked out in the preclinical uh, model systems. And people have to realize the preclinical system will allow us to know how, how to do this in the human. You don't want to be going and taking people and doing things that have not yet been completely vetted in a preclinical system. The preclinical system will guide us and how we will eventually manage what goes on in the human. So it's a feed-forward feedback system. Many of the clinicians feed me back information that I then apply to the preclinical system to try to better time and schedule the different processes. So this is the cutting edge right now in cancer as far as I'm concerned. I says, once we have these details worked out, the, the 1,600 people a day will drop significantly. I think, the, 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 as I said, there'll be a drop. Um, right now, 1,600 people a day, that's actually 1,650 or something. Um, I, I think we can drop that significantly over the next uh, decade uh, once we start moving these metabolic therapies and maybe hybrid systems at the beginning are the way to go. But I think in the long run, we don't want hybrid. We want pure metabolic therapy once the details are worked out because we don't want to harm. We don't want to put a toxic chemical into, into our body in any way. So, so in other words, can we achieve the goal without any toxicity? That's the key. Well, when I was referring to hybrid system, I was more like uh, referring to the natural hybrids like hydrogen peroxide therapy, hyperbaric oxygen, you know, things yeah. that are that are not typically damaging to normal healthy tissue. But they, ha they have to they have to be done in the right way. I mean, if you right, of uh, course, if if you put, uh, we think putting cancer patients in hyperbaric oxygen while they're in therapeutic ketosis is a way to go. But mm -hmm. I, I can't be sure that putting hyperbaric oxygen on someone who's in high glucose condition is going to be the way to go. So, yeah. so again, it has to be done strategically. Uh, and this varies from one person to the next. You know, some people may be in good ketosis in the late morning, others in the late afternoon. I, I can't be sure about that. Everybody's going to have to make that judgment for themselves. And these are the, the issues that have to be worked out. What is the best drug to work with hyperbaric oxygen? Why, why are we doing hyperbaric oxygen in the first place? Because you want to kill the tumor cells by oxidative stress. And the best way to do that is you, why are the cells resistant to ox oxidative stress? Because, because their fermentation capacity of glucose and glutamine makes their antioxidant system very strong. So mm -hmm. if I pull out the glucose and glutamine, they become vulnerable. Their protective shield is missing. So they go into a hyperbaric chamber and we can kill the tumor cells by oxidative stress without harming the rest of the body. So all of these things are strategic and they have to be done in the right sequence. Otherwise, the outcome may not be as, as, as uh, effective as we might think. And is the IV hydrogen peroxide therapy similar because it's another oxidative therapy? So it should be sequenced only in people who have low glucose and glutamine? I, I think low glucose, low glucose and, and targeting glutamine are essential for making tumor cells vulnerable to oxidative stress, whether it's vitamin C, IV vitamin C, whether it's hydrogen peroxide, maybe I haven't tried it. Maybe it's Well, I, well I, me I actually meant to say vitamin C because vitamin C turns into hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. So yeah. vitamin, these are all uh, powerful oxidative therapies. But again, 
the cells are resistant to oxidative stress as long as they're fermenting. So if you pull, pull the plug on the fermentable fuels, they become extremely vulnerable uh, to these kinds of therapies, making them far more, far more effective. And again, these are basically non-toxic therapies. But once you remove the fermentable fuels, the cells become, you can kill them in many, many different ways that are not going to harm the body. And this is all the future. We're talking about the future ways to kill cancer cells without harming the body or putting the patients at risk for all these other health issues. Okay, terrific. Mm-hmm. All right, so Tom, I, I have a follow-up question to this and then a precursor question. So I'm going to ask you a question about what you just said. And then the first question I should have asked you and neglected to, but I'll ask that after you finish this one, okay? So, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be confused by this substrate phosphorylation. So maybe you can simplify that concept for us. And does this simply mean that they're gaining ATP through an alternative source other than oxygen and that they're, they're oxidizing or phosphorylating ATP or what, what's the process to, what does that mean? I mean, there, is it the glut, glutamine and glucose that, that, how does no. that fit into the sequence? Okay. You have to look at the pathways that are involved. So um, before oxygen came onto the atmosphere some 2.5 billion years ago, energy was produced by substrate level phosphorylation because um, with organic molecules serving as the acceptor of electrons. Um, when oxygen came into the atmosphere, then oxygen could serve to uh, um, accept the electrons forming water as a waste product, uh, as an end product, water. And that's the basis for oxidative phosphorylation. You essentially make CO2 and water. So, um, but uh, substrate level phosphorylation involves the transfer of uh, organic phosphate residue to ADP to make ATP. So it's not an oxidative phosphorylation involving a proton motive gradient in the, in the, in the mitochondria uh, or across a membrane, but rather the transfer of an, in, of an or, uh, inorganic phosphate uh, uh, molecule to ADP to form ATP. So, so the, it's called substrate level phosphorylation because the because the phosphate group is moved from an organic substrate onto the ATP to make ATP. And this occurs at the pyruvate kinase step in the glycolytic pathway, the glycolysis pathway, but it also occurs in the Krebs cycle in the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So the the transfer of a phosphate group um, from succinyl-CoA to ADP with the product being ATP and succinate. So succinic acid is the end product of the substrate level phosphorylation. So glutamine, interestingly enough, is the only amino acid that's like energy gold. You don't have to do any uh, metabolic transformations to get the energy out of glutamine. Other amino acids have to be metabolized using energy to get into a, let, let me go through it again. You, you have glutamine entering the cell, which is metabolized to glutamate. Mm-hmm. Glutamate is then metabolized to alpha-ketoglutarate in the TCA cycle. Mm-hmm. And that serves as a substrate for, um, uh, for succinyl-CoA. So you can, you can then uh, produce succinyl-CoA from alpha-ketoglutarate. Mm-hmm. And then that goes to um, uh, succinyl-CoA, goes to succinate with the production of an ATP molecule. Mm-hmm. So uh, that does not involve oxidative phosphorylation. But it produces so, energy. 
yeah, so you're generating. Now, many people have known about this reaction for decades since it was first described, I think, in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, the problem was it was never recognized as being a significant uh, player in generating energy. It was always considered to be a very minor player. However, when you consider that uh, tumor cells suck down so much glutamine that it becomes, uh, um, um, people begin to question, what, what is all this glutamine doing? And then they argued, well, it's, using, it's going to make um, energy through oxphos and make fatty acids and these kinds of things. But what we found is that, it, well, it can do that. That's not, that's correct. But it can also make a massive amount of, uh, of ATP at that critical substrate level phosphoryl, phosphorylation step in the TCA cycle. So we have two sources of, of non-oxidative energy that the cell can call upon. One is in the glyc glycolytic pathway in the cytoplasm of the cell, and the other is in the mitochondria of the cell at the um, succinyl-CoA ligase step, which is the step in the TCA cycle that makes ATP. Both of these steps are ancient pathways that could be used to generate energy before oxygen came into the planet, onto the atmosphere. So, so what we have simply defined, and, and one of the problems was why people didn't think that step was important, because you, you need a, um, um, an oxidizing agent to accept electrons, and, and we now find that there are other ways, rather than complex one, there are other ways to generate NAD plus to accept electrons in the mitochondria through diaphoresis and these other kinds of things that Dr. Shinopoulos was able to identify. So we now have a mechanism, a molecular mechanism to account for how come, how glutamine can generate tremendous energy for tumor cells using mitochondrial substrate level phosphorylation. So this is, as Warburg said, there's two steps to the origin of cancer. One is the damage to the respiration. And the other step is the compensatory shift to a fermentation metabolism. So the, the, the compensatory shift now involves glycolysis in the cytoplasm and substrate-level phosphorylation in the mitochondria. Both of these are substrate-level phosphorylations, ancient pathways that can replace oxidative phosphorylation for energy. I know this sounds a little bit complicated, but mm -hmm. basically, basically the discovery is, is that Warburg was correct. It's just that he, had a, he didn't have the whole, all the parts to the puzzle. So mitochondrial substrate level phosphorylation is the missing link in Warburg's central theory. He was in fact correct. Uh, and we call this, because it uses um, glutamine, glutamine, the single letter, letter designation for glutamine is Q. So we call it the, the, the Warburg Q effect, which he uh -huh. didn't, so it's a Warburg effect, but it doesn't involve glycolysis, it involves glutaminolysis, uh -huh. which is the glutaminolysis pathway. And Q, glutamine, is the substrate for that. So yeah. we've called it the Warburg Q effect to distinguish it from the, what, for the decades old uh, Warburg effect, which was mostly involving cytoplasmic energy, energy through a cytoplasmic mechanism. Okay. So we actually, we actually feel that the majority of ATP from the cancer cell is generated by glutamine. So, and sometimes, uh, many people think that much less ATP is coming through the cytoplasm. Um, so, but the, the metabolites for growth are in fact produced from the carbons of glucose and glutamine. So uh, without energy, no cell can grow. The tumor cells are using fermentable fuels to grow. One is an amino acid and the other is a carbohydrate. And together, these two fuels drive the beast. So the, 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 the strategy then, the parsimonious strategy for managing cancer is simply to pull the plug 
on glucose and glutamine. And this now becomes the rational approach for managing all cancers because every cancer has the same problem. They're all fermenters. So they all, and, and, if, you, and if you don't uh, recognize that, look under the electron microscope at, at, at mitochondria in every kind of a cancer and you'll see they're, they're structurally defective. So if they're structurally defective, they must ferment. What do they ferment? They ferment glucose and glutamine basically with succinic acid and, and lactic acid as the waste products. And both of those materials can acidify the microenvironment, making immunotherapy, all these other therapies less effective. So once you understand the biology of the problem, the strategies for managing the disease become very clear. Well, I mean, you just enlighten us with so many different strategies and perspectives, I think. And it's, I think the perspective and the foundational framework is so crucial to have when you're um, given a diagnosis like cancer. So do you have any other words, parting words of wisdom you'd like to share? No, I, I think that, you know, this in my mind will be the future. Um, how long it takes us to get there, I don't know. But the path we are continually on right now uh, in trying to manage the disease is not dropping those numbers, as you've clearly indicated. This is a worldwide epidemic that is not getting better. And the strategies that are being used today as the hype are simply not going to be the strategies that are going to reduce those death rates. Metabolic therapy will. It's based on hard science. It's just going to take time for the patients and practitioners to understand the concepts. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom with us and for all the work you're doing and will do and really uh, identifying the strategies, the most effective metabolic strategies to, to put an end or at least a radical reduction to this disease, pervasive yeah. disease. Right, right. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Well, thanks, Tom.